Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 50, please. Psalm 50. The Psalms don't have a prescribed format. Within them, you find incredible variety. They range from pure praise songs to God to cries of judgment from God against sinful mankind. They include psalms of repentance, pleas for help, and joy of God's intervention. There are psalms that speak to us in our, in our darkest discouragement. And there are psalms that shine the light of God's glory into that moment of discouragement. There are songs as well that flatten us, demolish our selfish pride, and humble us before God. There are psalms that comfort us. That's what the psalms are known for. But there are also psalms that rebuke us when we sin. The psalms are beautiful and powerful statements of deep truths of God and man and of sin. But there isn't a prescribed format that they must fit into. Considering that, you often don't find consistency from one psalm to the next, or at least not continuity from one psalm to the next. There certainly is consistency in the message. There's consistency throughout the entire Word of God. That's undeniable. But there doesn't seem to be, in my opinion, rhyme or reason to why the psalms were arranged in the order that they were arranged in. But when you come to Psalm 49, 50, and 51, although perhaps there wasn't a guide saying we have to put them in this order because this is the reason, there seems to be some certain divine arrangement which would make sense because it is the divine word of God. Psalm 49 is a call not to trust in riches, which we looked at last week. Psalm 50, as we'll see today, is all about God's coming judgment on sin, particularly the sin of ritualism and hypocrisy. Then Psalm 51 is the greatest psalm or prayer of repentance that I'm aware of contained within the Word of God. If you wanted to alliterate these three psalms, you could title it Riches, Ritualism, and Repentance. There does seem to be some flow there. If we keep that at the back of our mind, it would do us much good. We're prone to get caught up in riches. We're prone to get caught up in ritualism. That is, serving something other than God in riches and serving God half-heartedly out of ritual. And our response to either of those sinful choices or sinful habits should be to come before God in repentance. So you have don't trust in riches, don't trust in ritualism, but come to God in repentance in these three psalms. It is good for us to be reminded that there is that continuity of thought or theme, at least in these psalms. Psalm 51 comes after Psalm 50. I know that's obvious, but the psalm of repentance comes after the psalm about God's coming judgment on those who practice their religion in a ritualistic way. It is good to know that repentance is still available to us. And even today, as we look at a psalm which is about God's judgment, today is still a day of opportunity, opportunity to repent. We have this moment, though each moment may be our last, but as long as God gives us this moment, we should take that moment when he convicts of sin to repent of sin. And as we read of the coming judgment of God, we should be quick to flee to God in repentance while he still does offer that opportunity. For context on Psalm 50, and we've simply been working our way through these psalms, the very introduction, it says, this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician during the years of King David. This is the first of his psalms. He's held in, in great repute or great honor. 
at the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the 70 years in captivity, when they began to worship in the temple, this is what is said, and this is in Nehemiah. It says, Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of their purification, according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So Asaph is held somewhat on par with David as a leader of worship. Now, for anyone who is a fan of drums, Asaph's band or choir was part of the percussion arrangement in the worship of Israel. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 19, it says, The singers Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the cymbals of bronze. So when you read the Psalms that are written by Asaph, he was a leader in the percussion department of the worship. He is also referred to as a seer, that is one upon whom the Spirit of God rests, and as a prophet. You'll probably pick up a little bit of the prophetic side of Asaph as we read Psalm 50. Now, there are 12 Psalms that were written by Asaph, Psalm 50, and then Psalm 73 through 83. I'm not sure if we're going to come to them successively or not, but we shall see. That's about all the context that we have for Psalm 50. We don't have an event. We don't have a date specifically when it was written, but it is applicable throughout all history, especially the history of Israel. And it addresses two ongoing problems, and it warns about God's coming judgment against those issues. Now, this psalm is specifically for the nation of Israel, as we'll see when we read it. However, the principles certainly apply today. To the church, they apply. So having said that, we're going to read Psalm 50, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to open your word. And we thank you that we can look back into the Old Testament and we can glean so much. And whether it's spoken directly to us or whether it's speaking in principles, that you, by your Holy Spirit, take your word and apply it to our hearts. And so we yield ourselves to you and we ask that you would do that this morning. We thank you that you are the God of the word, that you still speak through it. You are still accomplishing your purposes through it. Lord, may your purpose be known and be accomplished in our lives. Grant us an appetite for your word and a will to abide by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O people, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving. And pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. 
But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and you have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. The title of this message is, God Remains the Righteous Judge. God remains the righteous judge. And we see here in verse 1 to 6 that God is coming in judgment. We see in verse 7 to 13 that God will judge empty ritualism. We see in verse 16 to 22 that God will judge hypocrisy. And we see in verse 14, 15, and 23 that God calls us now to return wholeheartedly to Him. We're only going to make it partway through those points this morning. We're going to do verse one or point one, two, and then we're going to jump into a portion of point four. We see here at the very beginning, though, in verse one to six, that God is coming in judgment. He remains the righteous judge, and there is coming a day of judgment. The scene that is set here is glorious and terrifying at the same time. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth that is all of mankind, from the rising of the sun to its going down. Every person from the east to the west here is called to assemble before God. It's a judgment scene. It's standing before the throne of God in judgment. And it's interesting here that the three names of God or three of the names of God are used together. This is here a declaration as he speaks about coming in judgment of the power and the authority and the greatness of God, who righteously judges all. He is called the Mighty One, God the Lord. That is El Elohim Jehovah, the Almighty, the Supreme One, the Eternal God. There is no greater power, there is no greater authority, there is no one like our God. From eternity past, as Creator and Sustainer of all, He is Supreme and Sovereign and Almighty. It goes on and says that God proceeds out of Zion, that is the temple of Jerusalem. God comes forth from the Holy of Holies, the most holy place for the Jews, for it was the very dwelling place of God on earth. But God proceeds out of the temple and the perfection of beauty, God himself shines forth. He is no longer constrained to a place. He is no longer hidden from the eyes of his people. He is also no longer silent but he has shown and he has heard. The day of his long suffering with sin here, as we see in this passage, is done. He will come and he will mete out justice. He will settle the accounts. It's no wonder that it says, a fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. The contemporary English version translates that verse with fire burning before him and storm winds round about him. God is coming in judgment. This is the coming of the Lord. This is the coming of the end. The language here is apocalyptic and cataclysmic and rightfully so. This is God intervening. Then God calls the heavens and the earth 
as a witness, a witness of his judgment upon his people. We see in Romans chapter 8 that even all of creation has been put under the bondage of sin because of the sin of mankind. And it is waiting the day that God intervenes in judgment and in final redemption. So all that is created here comes to witness, to see this work of God in judgment. And notice that God calls the heavens and earth as witness to this judgment of His people. This is not the judgment upon those who do not know Him or do not profess to know Him. But it is a judgment upon His people that He calls heaven and earth to witness that. And then God says in verse 5, Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. He is calling His chosen nation Israel together. This is not just those who are truly of the faith, but all those who are part of the nation. He is calling them. We recognize that there is a difference, according going back to Romans again, between those who are part of Abraham as a nation and those who are part of Abraham through faith. But this is referring to the nations, all of those who have been chosen as his people rather than spiritual Israel. And God has called them together for judgment. And even the heavens, it says here, will declare that his judgment is righteous. God the judge is righteous and his judgment is just. Can you picture that coming day? Do the first few verses here in this passage stir you to awe and fear? It should. We have been so caught up, and to a certain degree rightfully so, but we have been so caught up with the grace of God in this age that we have forgotten that God is still the judge of all and that he will mete out judgment upon all. Now you say, but this is just for Israel, and you're correct. And you say as well, this is the chosen nation of God. What about the rest of the unbelieving world? And you're correct in that. But this doesn't exclude, because he's speaking to Israel, it doesn't exclude that God is also the judge of the unbelieving world. And it doesn't exclude the church from a period of judgment at God's hand. Here he is speaking directly to Israel. This is simply the account of God's judgment upon his chosen nation. The judgment upon the world will take place at the great white throne judgment. And the judgment of believers will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. And at each of these judgments, it is not about salvation. That has already been determined based on faith or the lack thereof when God extended the opportunity. This is judgment for what we have done with what God has given to us. And for that, we will all be judged. This just happens to be specifically about the nation of Israel, because that is the original audience that this is written to. Now you say, once again, Pastor, I just said that the judgment is coming for the church or upon the church, and that isn't the case. Well, eternal condemnation is absolutely not coming for the church. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, is abundantly clear about that. When it says, therefore there is, or there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Can't repeat that enough. None whatsoever. But there is still an accounting that will take place, which is referred to in the Word of God as judgment. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 10, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, that is alive or dead, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear, he's speaking to the church here, 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The same thing is declared in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, where it says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Once again, there is an accounting coming for the child of God. That is what is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 to 15, where it talks about whether we've built wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. It says there, each one's work will become clear for the day, that is the day of judgment before Christ, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. In other words, it will be tested. For fire will test, or for it will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Once again, the judgment of God here is not in regards to salvation, but what you have done with what God has given to you is an accounting of your actions, of your deeds, of your life, based on the blessing of God. Have you used it for His glory, or have you squandered it for your own? You see, for the child of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's not about your destination. Some of us will be saved smelling like fire. Our works, which were temporary earthly things, will be burnt up. We'll still be saved. But when we give account for what we have done with everything God has blessed us with, we won't be rewarded, but we'll suffer loss. I think that on that day of judgment, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, we will see him in similar fashion as he is described here in Psalm 50 to the Jews. We will see the almighty supreme God, the pre-existent one in his glory and majesty. And if it were not for the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, we would melt before that splendor. God is still coming in judgment and we will give account. Now, it's speaking to Israel, but the New Testament is speaking to us. There is still the day of accounting. Now, what is it here in this passage? Because that doesn't start off very positive, does it? (laughs) Judgment is coming. God is still the righteous judge, and he will judge. God is coming in judgment. What is it that the people of Israel were under judgment for? What is it that he declares? It's for their empty ritualism. And does that apply to us? I think that applies to us as well. The first thing that we see God here in Psalm chapter 50, judging his chosen nation for, is ritualism. God will judge empty ritualism. So far in this passage, we have seen God calling the courtroom to order. God has entered the courtroom in all of his glory. He has gathered his people from the ends of the earth. He has called heaven and earth as witness of his righteous judgment. But he doesn't begin to address the defendant, his own people, until verse 7. And then God takes the role, interestingly enough, as prosecutor and as judge, which he alone is worthy to do, for he knows everything perfectly and impartially. But as he begins to address his own people as the defendant in this case, notice how he begins, and it's beautiful in my mind, in verse 7. Hear, O my people. Even in the the courtroom, he is still referring to them as my people. 
He addresses himself to them as your God. The mercy that is seen in that statement is incredible. This is not an aloof judge punishing some unknown criminal. This is a father achingly disciplining his child. There is ownership there, even in the judgment of God against his child. And we praise God for that ownership. And we as a church, we know that ownership as well. We stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even as we give account for what we have done with what he has given us, we stand there as his child, forgiven and redeemed, still accountable, and will receive the reward or suffer loss, but still accepted and loved. But going back to what it is that God judges the nation of Israel for here in these few verses, and what I believe we will be held accountable for as well, is empty ritualism. For years here we see in this passage, the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices, and we know that they did for years and years and years. They had been commanded to, and they had obeyed that command. But the problem was that their heart was not in it. They were simply going through the motions. And God doesn't rebuke them for their sacrifices, although that will actually happen eventually. There will come a point where God says, I'm sick of the sacrifices. But here God doesn't rebuke them for the the sacrifices as far as their consistency of them, but he rebukes them for their apathy about the sacrifices. They were doing their duty out of a sense of obligation and not out of love. They did that bare minimum that was required. They maintained the external rites and they maintained the external programs and they maintained the external functions, but their heart was far from God. And God doesn't want the bare minimum. He doesn't want you to just maintain your religion by doing the, what is the least amount that's required. God desires your all. And God basically tells his people here, I'm done with your empty sacrifices. I don't need them. I won't take them. I won't take an animal from your house. I won't take one from your fold. Everything that exists, God says, it belongs to me anyways. I don't need your heartless sacrifices to satisfy me. God goes on and says, what you give out of obligation doesn't please me. It's not as if I would come to you when I was hungry to be fed and you would satisfy me. You see, God is in need of nothing. He is the only one who is truly and eternally self-sufficient. He doesn't need what we have to provide. He didn't create man and then enter into relationship with man and then require sacrifices from man because he was lacking in some way. He doesn't need anything. But he created man and then redeemed man when mankind sinned because of his love. Because love is that overflowing characteristic of God and he desired, not needed, but desired someone, something to lavish that love on and that would reciprocate that love to him. He doesn't need what we could provide in that sense of what we can give back to him. But he wants our hearts. He wants our love as he has demonstrated love to us. So God had enough of their lackluster, ritualistic religiosity. And I fear that God would have a similar, if not exactly the same message for the church today. That God would say, I'm tired of your rituals, that God would say, I'm tired of you maintaining the external, but your heart being far from me. And to a certain degree, God has already said that, hasn't he? 
Revelation chapter 2, speaking to the church in Ephesus, says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. It's all good stuff. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, whether you believe that the churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and chapter 3 are periods in history or regional churches at the time that John wrote the letter or that they are concurrently happening throughout this age of grace, the reality is that if the shoe fits, we should wear it. Does God say of the church today, you've persevered, you've been patient, you have labored hard, but I have this one thing against you. You've left me, God says, your first love. If we see a warning there that is applicable, then we should apply it. For God's attitude towards the strength of each church and the sin of each church doesn't change. That church in Ephesus, they'd worked hard, they were patient, they hated evil, they tested and discovered false teachers, they had a lot going for them. They were like the Israelites, faithfully bringing their sacrifices. But both the church in Ephesus and the Israelites were doing all they did out of empty ritualism. This is the way they had always done it. So this is the way they would continue to do it, even if it wasn't heartfelt. Christ corrected the scribes and Pharisees for the same thing. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of spices, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. They had gotten their religion down to a science, but they had forgotten the heart of the matter, justice and mercy and faith. God is coming in judgment, and he will harshly judge empty ritualists. But there has to be an alternative, doesn't there? There has to be an alternative, and praise God there is. God is still calling us and granting us opportunity to return wholeheartedly to him. It's actually the fourth point, but we're calling it the third point this morning. God calls us now to return wholeheartedly to him. We'll look at God's judgment against blatant hypocrisy. That's the second part of this passage next week. But I wouldn't want to just leave it saying God's coming in judgment, particularly against those who are ritualists, without giving us some hope. In the middle of this chapter, between God's judgment on that ritualist or ritualism and second part, the hypocrite, we have a call, a call to return to the Lord. Verse 14 and 15 specifically is the answer to empty ritualism. Right after God finishes testifying, and it's interesting, it's God testifying against his people, but right after he finishes testifying against them, he says, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So rather than empty ritualism, this is what God desires. God desires thanksgiving. God desires thanksgiving. It's not so hard to do, is it? Well, yes, actually it is. Because for me to truly be thankful, I have to first humble myself. 
and recognize that every good thing that I have, every good and perfect gift is from His hand. That means I must admit that I am not self-sufficient. It also means I must acknowledge what has been, often continues to be, my entitled attitude. It's impossible to truly give thanks to God for all the good things in our life when we think we deserve them or we earn them. God's goodness to you is not a right. It is a blessing. It is because of His mercies upon you. So we recognize His goodness. We recognize our dependency upon Him. We humble ourselves in light of that reality and give Him thanks. God desires thanksgiving. God also desires faithfulness. Verse 14 says, Offer thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. But by paying your vows, God does not mean mere external obedience. They were already doing that with their sacrifices. What God desires is that they would be true to their words of devotion. They would be true to what they have vowed or what they have committed. At every wedding, there's an exchange of vows. You promise to love each other for better, for worse, for sickness and and in health, so long as you both shall live. And often you say, and forsaking all others to be true only to you. Those are vows. What does God say here? Give thanks and fulfill your vows. Vows are an expression of devotion and love. And we have made vows such as that to the Lord. We yielded our life to Him at the moment we trusted Him for salvation. We promised then, even if we didn't realize it, to be faithful to Him. And He desires that we would fulfill our vows. We have made vows. And God says, I want you to fulfill them and to do so from your heart. To actually love God, and to be devoted to Him. We've made vows to spend time in His Word, haven't we? I pray that you have. And to spend time in prayer, in communication with God. And God says, give thanks and fulfill your vows. So God desires thanksgiving, God desires faithfulness. And God desires communication, we see in these verses as well, or fellowship. He says, Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is how it was designed to be. God is saying that he alone is God and we are his loved child. So call upon him. Call upon him. Like like a child does to their mommy or daddy. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will intervene. I I will deliver you. When a child has need, they don't hesitate to express it to a parent. Maybe they're adamant about it even with their parent. Do we come to God in that manner? He says that he desires thanksgiving, and he desires that we would fulfill our vows, and he desires that we would come to him, that we would come to him. And God promises to answer when we come to him and to deliver, and that through that, we will glorify him. We call He hears and answers, and we praise Him for it. That is to be the natural occurrence in the life of the child of God. That is what the typical Christian response or life is supposed to look like. The child calling, God knowing and and answering, and coming and intervening, and then the child saying thank you and praising God for it. 
God delights in that. It is the way that He has designed it. He has designed us to be dependent upon Him and to come to Him in prayer, seeking His aid, desiring that we would hear from Him and, and know His presence and experience His power in our life. He delights when we communicate that to Him, when we come to Him. And I'm encouraged with that. I know my own tendency to live in that place of empty ritualism. Just going through the motion. And if you've been raised in the church or in a Christian family, you probably become an expert in that before anything else. You know how to do church. Don't we? We know how to do church. We know how to put on that appearance, at least put on that mask. And for some of us, it's become so ritualistic, we don't even realize it's a mask anymore. And I think the longer we spend in it, the further the heart gets from God, and the more this mask becomes polished. We become experts at ritualism. God is coming in judgment. And according to Psalm 50, the first thing that He's going to judge here is those who serve Him out of duty and pretense, and whose heart is far from Him. Yes, it's to the chosen people, his nation, Israel. But we see in the New Testament, God is coming. There will be a day of judgment when we stand before him. And I pray that when that happens, that he would look upon us and say, I will reward you because you have loved me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you've loved your neighbor as yourself. Rather than hear him say, well, you made it. You accepted me. You you called upon the name of Christ, but all that opportunity and all that blessing and all that time that I've given to you? What have you used it for? What have you done with it? Why the pretense when I would have continued to bless you abundantly if you served me out of the reality of your heart rather than just that external veneer? God is calling us. As we see the coming day of judgment, to serve Him out of a heart of love and passion and joy towards Him. Otherwise, we will see this coming day of judgment as a thing simply to fear. We don't need to fear God's judgment if we have have served Him out of a heart of truth and of love. We can have a fresh and a vibrant relationship with the Almighty God of all. And according to this psalm here, it isn't all that complicated. Be thankful to God. Do what you've promised to do. Do it with your whole heart. And go to God when you are in need. He will deliver you and you shall glorify Him. And as as we do that, we will look forward to the day when we will give an account of what we have done with what God has blessed us with. For it will reveal a life of thanksgiving and fulfilled vows and continued dependency upon Him and rejoicing in God, for He will reward richly. And if we see that coming day as a day where rewards are given, then it is no longer a place or time of gloom and doom, but a wonderful event. I hope and pray that you can say that you are looking forward to the day of God's judgment. And if you can't, that you begin to live your life in such a way as you would be able to look forward to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
May we never forget that you are the sovereign Lord of all, that you are master and creator, that you are the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the all-wise one, that you are sovereign Lord. May we bow the knee before you. May we not do it out of fear, but out of love. Because of your great mercy and grace, which you have poured out upon us through Jesus Christ. When we have an awe of you, Lord, may it not be an awe that is just simply of being scared of you, but that we marvel in the wonder of who you are, and that we marvel that you have reached out to us, that you condescended to mankind. We marvel that you have made us your own through Jesus Christ. We marvel that you empower us and you equip us to do what you call us to do. And we recognize that we cannot be thankful. We cannot be faithful. Lord, we cannot be those people that you've called us to be except by your equipping. So we yield ourselves once again to you and we ask that you would pour out your love into our lives so that we would be able to love you in return, to glorify you for who you are and for all that you have done, so that we would be able to look forward to that day where you come and where you settle the accounts knowing that in Jesus Christ, as we have served you faithfully, you will reward richly. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.